occult crimes, paranormal investigations, urban legends, and strange happenings. Welcome to Myths, Magic, and Murder. Hey, welcome back to Myths, Magic, and Murder. This is episode 39. I'm Abby. I'm Kate, and we'll be your ghostesses on this mild, perfect day. The temperature has dropped. We're having a good time. Finally. There was some rain earlier, just as I put the laundry out. That's always how it happens. It's magical. What are you covering today, Kate? I am going to be telling you about the... Eamon's haunting. Exciting. It is. Can you give us any exorcism, haunting, horror? Whole package. Yeah. I'm talking about the Enfield poltergeist. What's that about? <laughs> well, I think I covered it all in that one swift name. It's the plot point for The Conjuring 2, if you've seen that movie. Nice. Speaking of The Conjuring, that's the Warrens, isn't it? Yes. Annabelle escaped. Annabelle did not escape. She is safe and sound in the Warrens Museum in Connecticut. Someone started this rumor by changing her Wikipedia page for some reason to say that she somehow escaped and that she was just on the loose, which is a hilarious thought with a little raggedy Ann legs. It is not hilarious, even a bit. She's here to make 2020 even worse. Yeah, right? With the way this year is going, Annabelle on the loose would really just put a cherry on top. Yeah, this kind of blew up on social media, which was a good meme, to be fair, but she didn't actually leave the museum. And the museum is currently owned by the Warren's son-in-law, Tony Spearer. And he made a little YouTube video basically proving that she's still in a glass case inside the museum. And he was like, they have really high-tech security there. She didn't run off. Good. She's all there. She's safe. They moved her, didn't they, recently? I think so. Yeah. I don't know how recent that was. Well, somewhat recently. I think anything's recent at the minute because we're not including quarantine time. Yeah, this year's been approximately two minutes long. Right. (laughs) Okay, you want to get straight into this? You might as well. Okay, so today I'm talking about one of England's most popular haunting cases, and a story that also features Ed and Lorraine Warren at least a little bit, but if you've heard of it, it might be because of them, or because of The Conjuring 2. I covered uh, the true story of the real Conjuring movie last Halloween, and the Enfield Poltergeist, obviously as I said, inspired the second movie, which we actually watched! Finally! Yay! We literally just finished it. Yeah, about... 10 seconds ago. We didn't want to talk about a film that we hadn't seen again. Uh, We thought we'd change it up. We've been doing that far too much. Yes, we have. But no longer. Apart from the film that I haven't seen for my story. Oh, Kate. I tried. I did. But it's hard to see films in England because we just don't have access to any of them on Amazon. That's true, yeah. Anyway, my sources are the Channel 4 documentary, The Enfield Poltergeist from 2007, which is on YouTube, sciencyclopedia.spr.ac.uk, EnfieldHaunting.com, EnfieldHaunting.co.uk, Wikipedia for details on Maurice, HistoryVersusHollywood.com, and HauntedRooms.co.uk. Alright, so for reference, Enfield is a borough of London, and this story begins in 1977. The house that was haunted was nothing out of the ordinary. It was a three-bedroom, count-alone, semi-detached house. It was occupied by single mother Peggy Hodgson and her four children. There was Margaret, who was 13 and was thought to be serious and reserved, Janet, who was 12, who was lively and an extrovert, John, who was 11, and he was often not home because he was at a boarding school, and Billy, who was 7, and he had a severe speech defect, but was a typical little boy. Peggy was thought to be a pleasant, happy woman who would do what she could to support her children, even though her financial circumstances were tough. She had a great relationship with her children, 
and they were thought to be good kids. The reason this story is so famous, aside from Ed and Lorraine Warren sort of stepping in, I guess, is because a lot of the phenomena was captured on camera, and any images of that will obviously be on our socials, at MythMagicPod, I presume. In August of 1977, Janet and John were in their bedroom, which they shared. Peggy was downstairs relaxing after all of her children were thought to be asleep. Suddenly, she heard a loud crash from upstairs and ran up there, obviously to scold her kids for lying because she thought they were asleep. However, when she got to the room, Janet instead insisted that the beds in the room began shaking by themselves. Peggy was obviously pretty annoyed and sceptical, and began to, you know, shout at her kids. And then she began to hear loud knocking noises on the walls, before a chest of drawers quickly moved across the room. Peggy and her children couldn't understand what was happening, so they ran to the neighbour's house for help. I like that the adults saw it pretty quickly, because... Most of the time, I feel like a, a, a parent wouldn't believe their children if they were like, the beds were moving, oh, we weren't just awake, you know? Exactly. I like that the ghost wasn't making it out to be like, your kids are playing up. Yeah. Because I hate in stories when that happens. Yeah, it's annoying. It's so irritating. Like, Please believe them. It's frustrating as well because like, yeah, kids make things up, but equally, they are people. Why would they lie about this? True. I guess for attention. Or as an excuse. I know, but there's nothing worse than when you're a kid and, like, you say something and no one believes you. And you're like, oh, like, it's, it's just believe me, I am I am just a little person. <laughs> me right now, standing <laughs> at 5'2". Just believe me, even though I am small. So the family fled to visit Vic and Peggy Nottingham. Oh, another Peggy, nice. Two Peggies, sorry about that. The families would occasionally socialise, but because Peggy was such a busy single mum... She didn't really have time to make friends with the neighbours. Can we say Peggy 1 and Peggy 2? I don't really write her, the neighbour, as Peggy often because I didn't want it to get confusing. Well, we can have Peg and Peggy. We don't need that. Clothes Peg. Stop that. <laughs> Even though they didn't have a close friendship, the neighbours were very concerned and aided in calling the police. Meanwhile, Vic, bless him, began searching the home for the family and oh. found that there were no intruders. He, he searched on his own. Yeah, before the police got there. God bless. Sweet man. Afterwards, the police also searched the home. While they had no real explanation for what had happened, a female constable by the name of W.P.C. Heaps stated on record that she had witnessed a chair that had moved four feet on its own. There was also a record of knockings. Either way, there was no evidence of criminals, so the police backed off and was like, this is none of our business. <laughs> this is for the church. <laughs> I'm out. Yeah. That's a bit spooky. Yeah, you should get someone else. <laughs> Involve someone that isn't me. <laughs> me. Over the next few days, small toys such as Legos and marbles began flying around the house. This was witnessed by both the family and the neighbours. Peggy did not know what to do, and council officials and, and priests were invited to come and try and scare off the phenomena, but nothing happened. Furniture continued moving, scaring everyone in the family. Knocking was heard on the ceilings, the walls and the floor. On the 4th of September, Peggy Nottingham, Peggy too, from the neighbour's Peg. house. Peg. Clothes Peg. Phoned the Daily Mirror, which is a British tabloid newspaper. The one with the sensational stories, I guess. You know what I find really interesting is that Americans have got very, like, localised newspapers. Do they? I, From what I'm aware. We have that as well, though. We have, like... Yeah, we've got, Liverpool, like, the Kent have... Messenger. Yeah. But no one reads it. 
but like we have the echo and everyone reads that but they don't have like a like a big one you know they don't have like the mirror the male the eye you know those are big everywhere yeah we have quite a lot of big newspapers like the tabloid ones and the broadsheet ones is that what they're called yeah I don't know the anymore. ones with the real facts, and then the ones with like the yeah, there's... ten ways to lose leg fat. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> like help me, my child lost everything. <laughs> help me, my dog is my mum. Yeah, right. My husband slept with the whole street. I love reading those; they're so entertaining. <laughs> Peggy was hesitant about broadcasting her life to the world, but she hoped that someone would see the article and then come to her aid. Reporter Douglas Bentz and photographer Graham Morris visited the house shortly after her call. Nothing happened. That is until the two tried to leave and Graham was hit in the forehead by a piece of Lego that was travelling at such high speeds that it bruised him and he had the bruise for days. Janet just yeeted him with it. Three days later, senior reporter George Fallows and photographer David Thorpe arrived at the Hodgson home Nobody really knows what they saw on this day, but they decided to contact the Society of Physical Research to get help, so I assume it was pretty intense. Damn. They were put in touch with a man called Maurice Gross. He had recently joined the SPR and offered to act as an investigator, should they decide to need one. Maurice was a successful inventor. He invented the rotating billboard. Wow. He got into physical research when his daughter Janet was killed in a motorcycle incident in 1976. After this, Maurice reported that his family experienced psychic happenings and coincidences that led him to join the Society for Physical Research and the Ghost Club. Maurice arrived at the house on September 5th and began to calm the family down. He was described as being really affectionate towards Peggy and her children. The loss of his daughter Janet is thought to be the reason he felt such a bond between himself Janet Hodgson, and the rest of the family. Oh, his daughter was called Janet as well? Yeah. Wow, what a weird coincidence. So he really bonded with her. Yeah. yeah. It's weird, because in the film, he's really annoying. Yeah, but it's to big up Ed and Lorraine. True. But he was he was really nice, and he did form a very strong bond with the family, especially Janet. He was sort of like a fatherly, affectionate figure to her. Mm. Maurice instructed Peggy to remain calm and take note of any incidents that may happen. He also began to take notes of all the incidents, and the Daily Mirror remained at the house for all the few days that he was there. During his first visit, Maurice witnessed marbles flying through the air and landed on the floor without rolling. Doors and drawers opening, door chimes swinging, and objects such as spoons and cardboard boxes that jumped around, which the family also witnessed. Maurice asked the SPR for some assistance, as the house was more active than he was prepared for, an investigator Guy Playfair arrived at the house on the 12th of September. Guy and Maurice worked together for over a year. They visited the house a total of 180 times. Oh my goodness. 25 of the times being all-nighters. Guy was interested in the paranormal from a young age, and he would often read the SPR journals just for entertainment when he was a kid. Oh bless. He was an author and photographer, and he studied the paranormal for many years. Because of this, the two were desperate to capture as many things on camera as possible for research and obviously for proof. Well, yeah, if you've just joined the SPF, you want to go back and be like, here's a whole portfolio of what happened. SPR. SPR. SPF. SPF 50. (laughs) They're fighting the sun one photo at a time. (laughs) 
Events recorded by Maurice and Guy included toys hurling across the room, and when they landed, they were hot to touch. Also, knocks and bangs throughout the home. Plumbing was ruled out as a source of this, also. The toilet door opened and closed. Metal spoons were bent. Footsteps were heard. Tape recordings and other electronic equipment failed to work. Uh, excrement appeared throughout the home. Small fires would start without explanation, which was usually because matches were just lighting themselves. Can I just jump in real quick? Yeah, go on. You know how you said plumbing was ruled out as a cause? Yeah. So, um, quick story. So, a lot of people don't realise how British houses are made and, like, I didn't how, even think about that. Yeah, how many, like, terraces we have. So, like, a lot of the time, you, you, you and your house are sandwiched between two other houses. Your wall is their wall so like your left wall is their right wall there's no real space so like for example one of my friends rachel she lives at the end of a terrace and for years her and this neighbor would like fight because they thought the other one was like banging on the walls telling him to keep it down but it turns out it was just a, a pipe in the wall wow yeah so they'd been arguing because they both thought the other one was being like super annoying to them but it's literally just so that could be a very valid thing. So I'm glad they ruled that out. Sorry, I just wanted yeah. to. I didn't even think about that. American houses, at least from what I've seen, are like quite all... separate. Yeah, separate. Unless they're like apartments, you know, like in New York where you've got like all of the houses, you've kind of got more of a terraced idea. But yeah, quite here, yeah. terraces are more common than like detached well, this houses. Was a, this was a semi detached house. So they, <laughs> what that means is that like imagine one building. And then there's a big wall in between them, and it's two separate houses, but they share one wall. Yeah, so you only share one of the two side walls in your house. The more you know. Anyway, also water would appear where there was no water source. The carpet would be ripped up in the same way each time, and the investigators couldn't replicate this. And Janet often levitated and dropped in different places, to often. name a few things. Yeah, just casually. Even levitating just... even once, that should prove that something is wrong. She just kept doing it. Look at me, mom. I'm flying. Janet, get down from there. Many people who weren't in the house or investigators also saw unexplained phenomena, such as the local lollipop lady, Hazel Short. Oh, do you guys know what a lollipop lady is? It's a crossing guard for Americans. Right. I did write that down. Okay, cool. I was like, they can't call it something as silly as a lollipop lady. No, that's just us and England and we say funny things. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> So Hazel was walking past the house when books came flying and hit the window. She said that it made her jump when she heard it because it was so quiet outside there was no traffic or anything. She began looking into the window to see what was going on when she saw Janet. And she said, I don't know if there's a bed underneath that window, but she was moving up and down as if someone was tossing her around. Like someone had hold of her legs and back and was just throwing her up and down. I definitely saw her come up about window height, but I thought if she was bouncing on the bed, she'd bounce from her feet. She wouldn't be able to get high enough, like, from the power to bounce off of her back to come up that high. Oh, so she was horizontal? And my friend could see her as well. Yes. There are photos of her levitating, but none of them oh. levitating from her back. They're right. all, her feet are down. People think she might have just been jumping when they yeah. took the photo. Obviously, you know, skeptics and such. Yeah. The Daily Mirror also reported to the best of their ability that they had ruled out total trickery. Although they had been able to replicate some of the phenomena, only the faking could have been done by an expert. So it's unlikely the kids were pulling an elaborate prank, though it is possible. Well, she was like 12, so... But I guess the idea is they could have all been in on it together. True, but I guess we'll if you had like, the mum involved, then... But anyway. 
On December of 1977, the poltergeist is said to have manifested itself through Janet. The investigators placed a microphone at the back of Janet's head and recorded her talking in a gruff, masculine voice. This is where the majority of the scepticism began, because there was no actual video evidence of Janet talking like this, so it's possible it could have just been edited to be lower. Although it doesn't really sound like it's edited to be lower, to be fair. It does sound like an old man. Is there an interviewer's voice in it as well? Yeah. Fair. Then I guess, like, how realistic could it be that they've gone through and edited just Janet's voice to be, like, realistically lower? Because, like, if I was going to do um a phony possession tape then i think i'd go all the way with it i think i i'd like um annalisa michel it yeah you wouldn't make it sound like an old man you'd make it sound like a demon yeah right i understand so in the documentary there's a few clips of the voice and it does kind of sound like an angry old man speech experts said that this has a resemblance to a false vocal cord tone which can be imitated if you figure out how to do it so she could have just been faking it. But a physicist carried out an experiment to try and replicate the sound Janet, uh, Janet was making. And there was a slight difference, but they were somewhat able to do it. Although, all of the test subjects got really sore throats afterwards, and Janet never had a problem like that. She didn't suddenly go from like talking horse, talking gruff to talking horse. Like That didn't happen. She's a pro. Horse. She's now in a uh, screamo band. My god. <laughs> or all I can think about is a talking horse. <laughs> the family... Just the... in general? That's all you can think about ever? Because I said talking horse. <laughs> the family and the reporters stood by this, being the poltergeist talking through Janet, and at one point a ventriloquist said that there was, if she was producing the voice through a diaphragm, so they made her drink water and speak, which she was able to do, but they didn't get it on camera. Do you mean like hold water in her mouth? Yeah. But I think they taped it into her mouth as well so she couldn't spit it out. Okay. But they didn't get that on camera. Mm, that's annoying. So In the film they do a similar thing, don't they? They have it like in her mouth, but they're like, she could have spat it out. Yeah, we they ruled looking. that out, but they didn't film it, so there's no real proof that she did that. And then at the end she spit up the water again. Yeah. To, to prove. Oh, cool. Yeah, so a ventriloquist said that she was producing the, the voice through a diaphragm. And Maurice thought that this was ridiculous, so we offered a grand to any kid who could replicate Janet's noises. And no one took him up on the offer. How much is a grand then to a grand now? Probably a lot. Oh, very accurate. <laughs> well, he originally said £500, <clears throat> and then he raised it up because no one was taking it. He was like, come on then, if anyone can make this gruff man's voice, come on twelve. Then. I'll give you a hundred grand. Give you everything I have. Kids don't care about money. If they'd have said, like, I will give you... Do you remember that robotic uh, dinosaur that was around in the 90s? Robo... Like, oh. Yeah. Roboraptor? Yes. He wasn't the 90s. He was the 2000s, and I had him, but yeah. Yeah, if if they'd have been, like... Get on my level. Here's a Tamagotchi. Oh, that was the 90s as well, wasn't it? I don't know. 70s Here's toy. Here's a chocolate bar. Here's a hoop and stick. Hoop and stick. God, Kate. <laughs> We're actually 10 years old recording this podcast. We're just children. <laughs> hey, I'm a fetus. At one point, Ed and Lorraine showed up in the middle of the chaos, but they were abruptly turned away, although the movie displays them as being the heroes of the whole thing. So, for, you know, if you don't know who they are, Ed was a demonologist. Seems easy. 
and the Lorraine was a clairvoyant and a medium. He was a boy, she was a girl. He was a demonologist, she was a clairvoyant. Can I make it any more obvious? <laughs> they agreed that the house was experiencing paranormal entity, but they had to leave like the next day because no one wanted them around. Yeah, they were like, uh, we're British, we've got it. Leave <laughs> us alone. They're just yelling, fuck off! Yeah, right. <laughs> we don't want your stupid cameras! One day, Janet's voice was recording as she said, My name is Bill. Just before I died, I went blind. And then I had a hemorrhage and I fell asleep and died in the chair in the corner downstairs. Guy and Maurice released this to the radio, but it's unclear as to why. Perhaps to try and prove the events, or maybe to create more attention depending on whether you're a believer or not. Mm -hmm. Soon after this, radio release, a man named Terry Wilkins came forward and said he recognised his dead father's voice, Bill Wilkins, Ooh. and that the house Bill had died in like, was his house, and that he had died in a very specific way. So going blind, having a hemorrhage, and then dying in that chair. So they were in the house that Bill died in? Yes. Right. Bill died in the chair in the corner, like in the movie. Wow. That's cool. At this point, many of the skeptics went quiet as they couldn't really explain how Janet would have known that information. But then people sort of piped up saying she might have heard it from a neighbor or from kids in school. But I was just thinking, like, I understand that and I like to go through things, you know, understanding both sides. But who tells a 12 year old that an old man died in a chair in a house by having a hemorrhage? Well, not even, yeah. I mean, like, fair enough. Maybe she went to school and one of the boys was like, because it's, it's always a boy. One of the boys was like, oh, you're in the haunted house. You know, an old man died in there. You know, like, that's realistic. But being like, an old man went blind and had a hemorrhage in the chair in the corner. His name was Bill. Yeah, right? That's kind of what I was thinking. That's... And why would the neighbours, older people, be like, hey, little girl, a man <laughs> named here. Bill. Yeah, it just seems like... <laughs> Come People over here, little girl. I have that? a story for you. A man had a hemorrhage. Yeah, it's not going to happen, is like it? Like a kid knows what a hemorrhhage is. Right? How I would you know retain what that is? information? Like, if I hear a really complex word and I don't fully understand what it is, I forget it. I can't then later be like, my name is Bill and I had a hemorrhage, in the, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of. I mean, several things lead me to believe that this is true, or mm -hmm. at least mostly true. Mm -hmm. And I think that's definitely one of them. Janet yeah. also used words uncommon for a 12-year-old, such as foul language that she did not otherwise use, because she was a good kid, and words like dematerialize in the correct context. This is what I mean. If a 12-year-old pipes up with the word anti-disestablishmentarianism, I'm going to be like, that's a possessed kid. Some say that she used possession as an excuse to swear, which I guess makes sense, but seems a bit extreme. Yeah, right. When I swore, I just took my punishment. Or just don't. Just wait a few years. What kid is like, mm, I want to say fuck. I think I'm going to stage a whole possession. I want to swear so bad. <laughs> My name's Bill Wilkins and I died. In you know what I mean? Like, you just wouldn't. She's out there reading the dictionary to be like, they'll never know. I respect most people being like, oh, it I'm skeptical because of this. But things like that, I'm like, just... <laughs> if she was going to swear, she'd just do it. She <laughs> She wouldn't make this whole hoax. Yeah, it's very unlikely. Peggy Hodgson died in 2003, reportedly in the exact same place Bill Wilkins died in, in the same chair. John died at age 14, and Janet left home at age 18, and her and Margaret occasionally appear in interviews like the documentary I mentioned earlier, but mm -hmm. that's it. 
Janet reported being bullied in school, being nicknamed Ghost Girl. She also confessed to using a Ouija board before the trouble started. Oh. Like in the movie. It's very frustrating when things like that happen because I'm like, you knew the risk. She's a kid though, she probably just wasn't into it. You still know the risk. Everyone knows. I mean, I'm aware that it used to be a parlor game. I did a thing on Ouija boards over on Patreon. So I'm aware of the history. I know that it used to be a like a parlor game. I get it. But it's the late 70s and you're a 12-year-old. You know what I mean? You know. You know what it's for. It's like doing Bloody Mary. You know. If you see a scary woman in the mirror, you have brought it on yourself. You've got no one else to blame here, Janet. You did a Ouija board. Come on now. Okay, she was having a hard time. You don't need to give her such an intense little lecture. All right, you didn't deserve pain, but part of it is your fault. All right, you're being a bit rude. <laughs> the mess. The moral of the story is don't mess with Ouija boards unless you know what you're doing, kids. Yeah. Well, she just w- don't mess with them anyway. <laughs> Janet also said that she didn't even know that she went into trances until she was showing the photographs. And Billy, the youngest kid, was never really involved in the hauntings because he was so young. Yeah. And Maurice also died in 2006. The family avoided publicity after 1979 when the disturbances died down, but they always stood by their ideas that the house was haunted. And this was made into a Sky Living TV show, a BBC Radio 4 show, and obviously the plot of The Conjuring 2. Mm-hmm. Although some major changes were made, such as obviously the crosses turning upside down, Ed and Lorraine Warren being there completely the entire time and saving everyone, even though they were only there for about 15 hours, and Maurice only being there for a short while while he was actually there for years and formed a strong bond with the family. Also the entire nun and crooked man. Oh yeah, they were obviously just there as like the (laughs) things. I do want to point out, I really, really enjoyed the film. I think it was a brilliant movie, but if you're thinking about it as a, a true story thing, yeah, if, was you're no like, <laughs> if you've got bored right at the beginning and you haven't listened to this and you're like, God, I wish there was a better way to visually see all of this, then it's not accurate. Is it scary? Yeah. Is it well filmed? Hell yeah. Is the acting great? Yeah. Is it entirely accurate? Mm. That's where I have my qualms. It's no documentary, but it is a good movie. So... Before we discuss your ideas, I'm just going to talk about the most popular skeptical skeptical ideas. And the first one was mostly just, you know, brought into the, the light because she called the press before she called the church or an investigator. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking, if you're in a situation like this, you weren't a believer before, and it's 1977. I feel like getting the phone book to try and find a paranormal investigator might be a bit harder than just going to the newspapers and hoping someone calls you. Especially if you don't really know it's a ghost or whatever. But what do I know? It could have been an elaborate scam. You know, it's entirely likely. Was she religious? I don't know. Because I don't know that I would think to go to the church. Especially since, from what I know, there's such a rigorous process um, to get confirmation, to get an exorcism in your home. Well, they didn't need an exorcism because it wasn't a demon, it's a poltergeist. True, yeah, but I mean, like, to get someone to deal with it. You know, to get the church to come over and, like, bless your house. Or, like, get rid of the spirit that is taunting you, you know? Fair enough. So I think, yeah, um, I I don't think that is a giveaway that she has made it up. Well, I was thinking as well, maybe she didn't fully believe that it was 
a spirit and was just like, if I put this out there, maybe someone who can explain what it is, like a psychologist or a doctor could just tell me that I'm crazy or, you know, someone might come to my house and clean it for me and get rid of all of the spirits or whatever. Like, it might not be as straightforward as just... Yeah, or like other people might be like, it's okay, I have that. Here's how to deal with it. Yeah, exactly. The reporters who were in the house said that the atmosphere in the house could have caused a mass hallucination or that the kids were making the situation more intense or like pranking them to some degree. But they did believe most of the events that took place, but they did also say it could have been just our imagination because it was just such an intense time, you know? True. Um, I don't... See, my problem is I don't really know how you would just imagine marbles flying through the air and then dropping still. Yeah. Or, like, imagine being smacked in the head by a piece of Lego. Yeah. That bruised. Or, you know, imagining a child levitating. These all seem like big issues. (laughs) Also, there's an idea that Peggy may have just been bored because she was a single mother and the kids may have just been naughty. Oh, Which I think is kind of rude to imply, I won't lie. That's so rude. Like, they just weren't living in their house, and they were like, "Mm, I'm a bit bored, let's get the press involved. Right? Are you aware that single mother boredom is the same as everyone else's boredom? Yeah. Also, maybe the photos of Janet levitating was because she was good at gymnastics, so she could have just done a big jump. Come on. One big jump has fooled the nation. And finally, people think that Ed and Lorraine Warren could have impacted the kids on their visit by telling them about what they've encountered. So they started to sort of believe it or make up more stuff, depending on what you believe. True, but they were there like 20 minutes. <laughs> well, they were there for the day. So they could have talked to the kids and been like, oh, when we when we did Amityville, this is what happened. And then the kids were like, either convinced that's what was going on, or they were making a prank based off of that. True, but... Things were already happening before the Warrens got there. That's how they turned up. Yeah, well, that's all the information I have for you. So what do you think? I think it was probably just haunted, to be honest. There's a lot of things that I can't imagine sort of how you would stage that. All right, let's do the scare scale and we'll get into some ideas. Okay. How scary do you think this story is? Like a three. People weren't very hurt. How dangerous? Again, like a three. Like, there was obviously some malicious intent. Someone was smacked in the head by a Lego, but no one died. How likely is it this house was haunted by a poltergeist? Like, five. Oh, she's a believer for this one. Nice. What are your ideas, then? Poltergeist. Yeah? Is it What What makes you think that more than anything? Like, what are your, what are your biggest pieces of information? Well, if you'd have started off the story by being like, Janet was a real prankster who studied gymnastics for the 12 years she was alive. You know, I might be like, okay, maybe, you know. Or like, her and her mother would often set up pranks for the other kids and for people around the town. But that's not what happened. And also, a lollipop lady said it happened. I believe them. I trust anyone with a lollipop. They are in the hands of my safety crossing the street. (laughs) I trust them with my life, literally. My lollipop man, where I live, where I used to live, where I grew up, just used to cross like at the traffic lights. So when the traffic lights would go red, he would just stand in the middle of the road. Yeah, me too. What's the purpose? Well, because you learn as a kid that it's only safe to cross where the lollipop lady is or when you're with your parents. 
Right. When I was a kid, I was like one of those, you know, extra woke kids where I was like... <laughs> you were such an annoying kid. Yeah, probably. Where I was like, um, well, why is the lollipop man where the traffic is? I could already safely cross there if you just stop, look and listen. <laughs> you know. God, you're so annoying. But yeah, um, I guess it could have been um, a mass like delusion and hallucination. Maybe. And I guess it could be gymnastics. And I guess it could have been a prank. But I do not believe any of those. I I'm... think it's the Bill thing that gets me. Her being like, my name is Bill and I died in that chair. Right? It's so specific. There's just a lot of things that I cannot see how it could be faked. But. Well, there you go. There's that story. Yeah. If you like this podcast, you can give us a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and also Twitter, but we don't use that quite as much, at Mids Magic Pod. And if you want to help support the show and give us a little bit of cash, then you can go over to patreon.com forward slash midsmagicmurder. On Patreon, we don't really have any tiers anymore. I don't know if you listened to any of the earlier episodes where the audio quality was pants, but now we've just got a, you can donate as much as you want or as little as you want per month and you get everything. So you get us chatting shite whenever we want to and you get what our episodes are going to be slightly earlier than everyone else so you can prepare yourself for the storm also if you've got any haunted happenings terrifying tales or spooky stories you can email those over to us on mythsmagicandmurder at gmail.com or you can send us a DM true you ready? I am ready so today I'll be telling you about the Eamon's haunting or the 200 demons house dun 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 I always thought it was Ammons well it's spent spelt a-double-m-o-n-s but when i watched the documentary and stuff they were saying amons but i think it's because they were american so i don't i just don't know i'm saying amons because that's what they said yeah also because i just said that it doesn't mean i know this story i just it was mentioned when i was researching mine <laughs> yeah my sources are wikipedia indie star which is one of the um localized american <laughs> news sources realparanormalexperiences.com Zach Baggins' Demon House, The Lost Footage. So, my main, my main guy, Zach Baggins. Yeah, he did a like a docu film on the Demon House, but I couldn't access that, so I got accidentally stumbled across the lost footage from it, which was about forty minutes long, and it was just kind of like bits that didn't make the final cut, but were still him in the house and sort of seeing spooky stuff that was going on. Ripley's.com, ChicagoTribune.com, Britannica.com, and FrightFind.com. All right, so back in 2011, Latoya Amons, her three children, aged 7, 9, and 12, and her mother Rosa all moved to a cottage in Gary, Indiana. Interestingly, back in 1993, Gary, Indiana was declared murder capital of the U.S. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that that was a thing people actually did, and it isn't just from the Lost Boys. Yeah, no, it is. It had 1,019, 125 people living there, and in one year alone, 110 people were killed. Whoa. Okay, in this, Gary. In this one, one place. Anyway, this story begins with flies. Lots of big, black flies. The family remembers moving in in November 2011, and by December, the porch screen door was covered in flies. Did they leave a Chinese out? <laughs> Well, it was just the door. It wasn't the inside of the house. Now, I did some fly research. 
and flies nice. are normally in dire pores during the winter months, which is typical of many insects and snails, which is basically when their metabolic activity is just severely cut. They just sit instead of hibernating through the cold months, which I always wondered. Oh, I didn't know that. So wherever the flies live, they just sit for months. Yeah, they just find somewhere and then they just do nothing. Maybe that's why they're so freaking active yeah. in the summer and they're buzzing around you all the time. So as the Amons family suspected, tons of flies in December is very out of the ordinary. What was even stranger is that the family killed them time and time and time again, yet more flies would come along and take their place. God, that's so annoying. After this, things only got stranger. Both Latoya and Rosa said they could often hear the thud of footsteps climbing from the basement, then the basement door creaking open. Oh, no, that's spooky. Obviously, both women checked to see if there was an intruder many times because they valued their safety and the safety of the children. However, they couldn't find anything. That was until one night when Rosa awoke and saw a shadowy figure of a man pacing in the room. When she went to confront him, he was gone, and all that was left were large, wet boot prints. Oh, horrific. That is pretty scary. Then shit hit the fan. Oh. It was around 2am on March 10th, 2012, and Rosa and Latoya were still awake because they were celebrating the life of a family friend who had passed away. Latoya had gone to check on the children to make sure they were asleep, especially since they had friends sleeping over and kids are the worst at going to bed. (laughs) But when she walked into the 12-year-old's room, the 12-year-old daughter, sorry, she screamed and called for Rosa. In front of her eyes was her daughter, still asleep, levitating a few feet above the bed. Since the rest of her family had heard her scream, they'd gone in to see what was the matter, and they all decided to circle the girl and pray, because they didn't know what else to do. Smart move. This led to the 12-year-old being slammed back onto the bed. When she woke up, she had no idea what happened, which is probably for the best, and all of the guests that night never returned to Latoya's house. That's a shame. I'm glad that they all had one thing they strongly believed in and just dealt with it immediately. Yeah. Rather than being like, oh my god, what do we do? Yeah. They were just like, come on then, time to pray. I respect that. All our training. (laughs) Now I know what you're thinking, I would move out immediately. But Latoya and Rosa were pretty strapped for cash and they'd only been living there a few months and they were renting. So they had a contract. Instead, they tried to reach out to churches for help. But most churches refused to even listen to the women. But one church listened and said they had spirits in the house and should clean the home with bleach and ammonia, then use oil to draw crosses on every door and window. The women did this and Latoya doused the children in olive oil as well, to no avail. It's good for your skin though. (laughs) Latoya also reached out to two clairvoyants to see if they could help find out what exactly was going on. Now they basically just went, oh. There's 200 demons in your house, you should move, and left. Which is not helpful, I don't think. No, I think that would make things worse. Yeah, somehow. Another clairvoyant told Latoya to do the following, which she did. Make an altar in the basement. Place a white candle and a statue of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus on it. Then put on a white shirt and put white scarves over your head. Then burn sage and sulfur through the house, starting from the top and working down. As Latoya did this, she read a psalm aloud. The family were finally left alone. For three days. Oh no. Before it got worse. Worse? Jeez. 
From here, they all started to get possessed on and off. You could tell when the children were possessed because Latoya said they got evil smiles, their eyes bulged, and their voices deepened. Nope. Yeah. No demon kids in my house. Nope. Rosa said that just before getting possessed, she would be flocked by a bunch of forces sort of spinning around her, and she would try and look at them so that they couldn't take over, you know? But obviously, it would make her dizzy, and then she would get weak, and then possessed. It's a shame that this... I mean, I mean, obviously it would continue, mm -hmm. but I really like that she's actually trying sort of actively, like she's smart about it. Yeah. So that sort of method of possession is similar to what Zach Baggins reports in the lost footage when he's in the basement of the Eamon's house. So I made Abby watch the footage so she kind of knew what I was talking about when I was talking about it. So apparently Latoya would feel warm, weak, and lightheaded when she was possessed. When not possessed, strange things still happened. Like, for example, when Latoya found her youngest, the seven-year-old son, talking to a boy that no one else could see in the closet. Apparently, he was enlightening the seven-year-old about what it felt like to be killed. Oh no. Yeah. That's horrific. Yep. This same seven-year-old was also thrown out of the bathroom by an unseen force. As in, like, physically thrown, not just like, get out. I'm peeing. <laughs> yeah, right? That's horrible. Throwing was commonplace, as people were often thrown into walls, the tumble dryer, and a headboard was once thrown at the 12-year-old daughter. This needed stitches. As well as this injury, the 12-year-old was also choked and held down by unseen forces. When this was happening, she was told by a disembodied voice that she wouldn't live another 20 minutes and that she'd never see her family again. That's so horrible. Yeah. Obviously, all of these hospital visits were getting a bit suspicious for everyone. So Dr. Jeffrey Onyakwu, sorry if I've said that wrong, I tried to look it up, the family physician got involved, as well as the Department of Child Services, which I will henceforth refer to as DCS. Jeffrey thought Latoya was delusional and having hallucinations when she described everything, although the sons cursed at him in demonic voices, and the DCS claims in a report that the youngest boy was lifted and thrown into the wall with no one touching him. After this, both boys passed out and were taken to the local Methodist hospital. The nine-year-old boy woke up and was rational, but the youngest had to be restrained by five men as he was screaming and thrashed around erratically. Although Dr. Jeffrey thought Latoya was delusional, a DCS request for her to be evaluated by a psychiatrist found that she was of sound mind. Valerie Washington was assigned to the case. She was the DCS worker. When Valerie and Latoya were talking in a separate room in the hospital, the youngest boy was emitting a deep growl as his eyes rolled to the back of his head. Every time Latoya mentioned churches and the advice she was given on how to kill the spirits, her son got louder and louder, until eventually they were called to come back into the room to help because the youngest son had the eldest in a headlock and was choking him. Oh my god. Yeah. Bear in mind, this isn't just Latoya's side of the story. That information was from a State of Indiana Intake Officer report. Wow, that's official. Yeah. And from interviews with physici physicians and hospital workers, as well as DS DCS reports. Then, on the same night, the eldest son looked at Valerie, his mother, and his grandmother with a weird grin as he slowly walked backwards up a wall, 
to the ceiling and flipped over his grandmother, landing on his feet. Oh my god. Obviously, when reporting this, people had asked, you know, did he have a run-up, etc. But all parties involved maintained that it was a slow glide up the wall. Maybe he was just, I don't know, good at gymnastics. Well, I've literally written, which would be impossible for even the most trained acrobat, which this child was not. Not Janet. She was the best gymnast I've ever seen. (laughs) The boys remember nothing. The next day, the children were separated from their mother and grandmother by DCS. Just because of the amount of, like, psychological harm. It doesn't stop there, though. Latoya invited Reverend Michael Maginot, I think, over after he had been asked to perform an exorcism on the nine-year-old boy. So he wanted to go to the house first to see what kind of, like, circumstances he was dealing with before he went to go and see the boy. While he was at the house, he had found a flickering light in the bathroom that stopped whenever he came into the room. So he thought that whatever it was was scared of him. This ties into Zach Baggins' experience as well, because in the lost footage, there's a clip of a dark figure lurching towards the camera as they go past the bathroom, which really unsettled me, and I hated it, personally. It was horrific. (laughs) Also, the blinds start to move, although there was no airflow, like no windows were open, no doors, no nothing. And there were wet boot prints in the living room, and Latoya complained of a headache, so Michael put a crucifix to her head, at which point she convulsed. He was convinced they were being haunted and told her to stay somewhere else. It was supposed to be a short visit, but the reverend stayed for over four hours. Wow. Two weeks later, the police accompanied... Oh, she did move out, by the way. They went and found somewhere else to stay. Understandable. But two weeks later, they had to come back because the police accompanied the DCS worker to the house to perform a safety check for the children as they were still in DCS custody. Latoya refused flat out to go in. So Rosa went in with them. While they were there, the audio recorded by the police malfunctioned. As the power drained from the recording device, even though the officer had put in a fresh battery the day before. As well as this, after listening back to the audio recorded, an unknown voice can be heard whispering, Hey according to police records. Wow, that's how you know it's real. Police records. The most sceptical of the sceptics. Mm-hmm. Photographs of the house have been zoomed in on and found clouds resembling faces or strange silhouettes. Those are police photos as well. They're not just random ones. That's really spooky. Later, the police's cars and one of the police officers' garage doors was malfunctioning. So... I feel like they're probably sceptical, and this is all still happening to them. This ties in again with what happened to the police officer present in the documentary, because when he went home the night, that night, sorry, the alarm had disarmed itself twice, and he heard a loud, loud crash from downstairs, but there was nothing to see there. By May, the police searches of the property were continuing. On May 10th, a group of police, DCS workers, and Reverend Michael went into the house. Michael wanted to see if there were any ritualistic items buried that could be used as a passage for the spirits. The police dug a small area under the basement stairs and found a pink press-on nail, a pair of white women's underwear, a pin, a lid of a cooking pan, socks, and a heavy metal cylindrical object. While this was happening, an unexplainable liquid started to drip from the blinds upstairs. 
The DCS worker, Samantha Illick, who was there because Valerie vowed never to return, touched the liquid and a few minutes later said her finger felt broken and it had gone tingly and even whiter. Oh my god. She then had a panic attack and couldn't breathe, so she went outside. Everyone finished up in the house shortly after. They had a look at the liquid on the blinds, so they wiped it all off with like a cloth, obviously, they didn't want to touch it. And um, they shut the door because they were like, oh, maybe Samantha poured it on there or something. So they wiped it, shut the door, and went back in 25 minutes later, and it was there again. Ooh. Since going in, Samantha had a string of medical problems. She had third-degree burns from a motorbike, broke three ribs, a hand, and an ankle, and that was within one month of going into the house. Oh, wow. That's intense. Yeah. Eventually, after many exorcisms, the Amons family moved out of the house in June 2012. Latoya eventually regained full custody of her children in that November, and they now all live happy lives in Indianapolis. Since then, Zach Baggins bought the house from the landlord and has since demolished it in 2016. Father Michael did not agree with this, as he thought that Zach could have protected far more people by owning the house and locking it up so that the demons could reside there and not attack anyone. But now they're free. Zach? Yeah. You can't just do these things. Well, he was super freaked out by his experiences there. He was scared. Like, he, there were interviews with him and he was like, that one really tipped me over the edge, so... Just knock it down. Yeah. Pretend it isn't there. But what's strange with this case is that the landlord said he'd never had any strange complaints before they moved in. And he also said that the supernatural complaints may have been an excuse not to pay rent, as Latoya was behind on her payments at the time. This coincides with the belief that she was using this as an excuse for her children's poor school attendance as she was delusional and didn't want to be away from them for any extended period of time. Tracy Wright, a child psychologist, believes that the children were being affected by their mother's beliefs, because whenever the youngest son was challenged or asked questions he didn't want to respond to, he would act possessed. Interesting. What do you think, Miss Psychology? It's hard to know, because... All of the children acted the same. It's not just like it was the youngest or whatever, or like one kid was doing it more than the others. They all had strange experiences. Yeah. So it's hard to know. But then I don't know if something like that would attack everyone in the house. You know more about that than I do. Yeah. See, with demons, they would usually work on breaking one person down so that they could possess them and then use them as, like, a vessel. But it's interesting that for some reason this demon, if it is a demon, is just swapping around, you know, like, is it broken all of them down and is then able to possess all of them? Well, I think for sure it was more than one thing in that house. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Because, like, Rosa was saying, they would sort of all gang up on one person and, like, spin. So that they felt dizzy and weak and stuff, so that they could enter the vessel. Oh, maybe, yeah. Because so. with one demon, it's usually over the course of quite a while. Yeah. It like, starts to break them down and make them vulnerable, so that it can just get in you, you know? Yeah. But 
yeah, I guess that would make sense. I mean, it's possible that it was just delusions and hallucinations, but... Oh, yeah, but you like to think about both sides, don't you? Definitely. So how scary do you think that that was? Um, a solid three and a half. Fair enough. I think it's kind of scary, but it ain't the scariest. <laughs> how dangerous? Five. Yeah. Like I was walking backwards up a wall. I don't know what could have happened in there. Also, yeah, right. ritualistic burial. Yeah. It, so it all just seems a bit, uh, bit too spooky for me. Yeah, right? What's the likelihood that I would, it was something spooky? I would also say a four. Yeah. Yeah, because of the police records. I think that it makes sense that it's a compelling argument for them to be like, oh, she didn't want to pay rent. But if... It's a long way to go were, to not pay rent. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. And all the kids are in on it. And he's going backwards up the wall. They're all getting possessed or feeling nervous. The blinds getting wet. It all just feels like, could all these things be massive coincidences? Probably not. Maybe. But yeah. yeah, that's kind of where I was at with it. Yeah, especially because the police said it. Because that's sort of the biggest telltale is when the police who are obviously usually very sceptical and just will be like, this is nothing. We'll keep going back and being like, spooky things are happening here. We'll write it down. Well, it's similar to yours as well, where the officer said like that the chair moved four feet. You know, it's like normally police officers would, would try and blame it on something else. Like, oh, the chair moved, but there was a string attached. You yeah, know? they're rational people when it comes to paranormal things usually well Rational yeah because they don't want like their time skeptical. to be wasted you know they don't want to they don't want their time wasted with hoaxes and whatever because they don't want to pay their rent they're gonna be like fuck off there's nothing weird about this house just pay your rent exactly and, you know stop manipulating your children yeah demonic possession is not a reason to not pay your landlord <laughs> maybe <laughs> you got any other ideas does the demon contribute to the rent? Uh, other ideas, I guess, rate rent payment, but I think it was probably rent payment. At least more than one entity, maybe a demon accompanied by other demons or other ghosts or something like that. Negative spirits, just just some mad, some mad spooky stuff going down in there. Yeah, fair enough. Is what I think, but I. I understand everything else. I just think because the police and the child services were in, it's just, yeah. Yeah, that's where I'm at. Well, I would also love to know what you guys think. Drop us a link. <laughs> Let us know how you feel. Yeah. I loved both of those. It was interesting. It was it different. It was. Good episode. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts. It does help people see us a little bit easier. And finally... Don't listen before bed. Listen before bed.